Hey guys, how's it going? This is Derek Craig and welcome to another oldfootbasics.com Discover Podcast. This is the podcast where we learn something new about our incredible industry on every single episode. If you're new to the show, welcome. Uh, we've got all kinds of episodes for you to explore, a long library. Like I said, this is episode number 83. So 82 uh, additional episodes to, to look back on, all kinds of topics from uh, downhole tools and how things operate to um, topics like we're going to be talking about today on uh, federal lands, um, all the way down to some some other legal topics. And we even um, episode two, for example, is about uh, how we use canines to inspect for pipeline leaks. So we've literally covered all kinds of different topics. Uh, so go back through and, and check out our library. We've got a whole bunch there for you to, to check out and learn from. And that's the point of the show. And today we're actually, like I mentioned, we're going to be talking about federal lands and kind of understanding that better. Like where are these at? Um, what do we actually do operationally on them? Um, how are they governed? Um, also getting into a little bit more about the leasing and also impacts uh, from this upcoming election. So just a topic that I think it's, it's a very important time for us to be able to understand this topic. Um, so we've got uh, Brisey Carlson, who's going to be joining me in just a minute, uh, to be going uh, to be filling us in on this topic. So just a couple quick notes before we dive into this. Um, last week, as I was kind of mentioning other episodes on the podcast, if you missed last week's episode, um, it was talking about transitioning out of oil and gas. And it's, it's a very bittersweet topic. It's kind of one of those that like, I know I needed to cover because there's definitely a lot of people in that position or trying to figure out how to make the best use of their experience in the oil and gas industry and in other industries, at least for the time being, it may not be permanent, but we, we talked through that and talked to just some of the, the ways to think through that and how we can reposition ourselves and our skills that we do have from working in this industry. So hopefully you're not facing that situation. Hopefully you're <laughs> still awful proud and still employed. Uh, but if you're not or know somebody, that, that's definitely a good resource for you. Um, also, something that's come out in just the last couple of weeks, um, we have three new courses from Scott Neal. Um, so this is the gentleman who's been helping us out on a lot of midstream related content. So we've got a new course called Amine Treating Systems. We've got cryogen, cryo, Cryogenic Processes for NGL Extraction, Fundamentals of Glycol Dehydration, Midstream Codes and Standards, and also uh, Engineering Calculations Associated with Midstream Industry um, with actual spreadsheets. So all kinds of tools there for you guys to take advantage of. Um, even if you're not in midstream, uh, there's obviously some parts of that that do relate even to, to some downstream potentially. So uh, lots of good content and resources for you there. We've also got a course that um, just came out. I think I mentioned this in the last podcast, stress shadowing and perforation orientation, and also some material on international completion operations of fluids. So all kinds of topics, even on the course side. So definitely please go check that out. Uh, a lot to, lot to offer there and a lot more coming down the pipeline too. So there'll be more released this week also. So keep your eye out for that. Now, with that said, um, <laughs> we, we've got uh, Breesy Carlson here with me today. I'm going to be talking about federal land. She's a, a partner at um, Kipper Law Firm, uh, also a board member for uh, Energy Strong. Uh, so it's an organization that started here in Colorado and now basically uh, spread out through all kinds of um, oil and gas producing states. Um, so she's now one of the newest board members there and is also a signed author for Wolf of Basics. So we're going to be getting a lot more courses and content out of her in the coming uh, weeks or months, whatever that looks like. But uh, great to have you on here today, Breezy. Thank you so much for having me. I very much look forward to it. Um, and you are so very right that federal lands are a highly relevant topic. Um, and I mean, if you look at Colorado, Colorado is a perfect example of the unintended consequences of elections. <laughs> um, so really understanding the magnitude and scope of what our federal lands are, what that mm -hmm. means to our industry, um, is really important to navigating how we cast our votes this year. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, yeah. a lot, a lot to talk about here in this, but I guess can you give us a little bit of a rundown on your, your background and, and why are, how do you know about federal lands? how do you get involved with this? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. So my background, um, I've been in oil and gas since about 2009 when I graduated law school. Um, and I ended up working for a broker. I think, I, you know, I just really needed a, I just needed a paycheck, right? And mm -hmm. I think there are words to me where, you know, you're extremely overqualified for this job. <laughs> like, That's great. I don't care. Um, and I ended up working for Samson Resources pre-KKR, managing title for their Powder River Basin asset, which was really my first exposure to in-house operations and also federal lands. There are a significant amount of federal lands in Wyoming, a huge part of the Powder River asset. And so I started working with that asset, the ownership issues, the title, communitizing, pooling, some operational, um, you know, 
obligations mm -hmm. yeah. um, and working with the BLM field offices and getting to know them. And that was really my introduction to federal lands. Ever since then, I've practiced mineral title mostly and some regulatory work predominantly in Colorado and Wyoming. Um, and again, these are just hugely federal land states. So yeah. been working with it for a while. Certainly wouldn't call myself an expert. Um, you know, I don't think anybody can be an expert in the government because uh, it's <laughs> like, <is> every day. <laughs> yeah, it's Colorado weather, right? Just wait five minutes and the answer will be different. All right. Um, but it is a really fascinating topic and I've been working with it now for 12 years. So awesome. learning to navigate. Right. <laughs> Picking up on some themes, huh? And some trends. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. No, but great time to, to cover this. It's come up in a couple of different discussions, even on the debate stage. So it will be last week by the time this is recorded. But the day we're recording this Friday, right after the election um, debate. So lots to talk about on that. And it is, is it a topic that we're hearing more and more coming up. So I want to make sure our listeners are keen to this. But you mentioned Colorado and Wyoming have a lot of federal lands um, that's being, you know, uh, targeted by oil and gas producers. Uh, how does this kind of look on the, the grand scheme of the U.S., like acreage-wise and also like uh, other states also involved in this? Certainly. So, and you know, one important distinction with respect to federal lands and oil and gas is that um, the governing bodies for onshore and offshore assets and production are in fact different. So most of what I speak to is onshore. Mm -hmm. um, okay. To be clear, was, and some question, of these, so. <laughs> and some of these numbers are muddied in the regard that I will refer to, um, for example, production rates, and mm -hmm. some of those numbers may include onshore, may not include onshore, etc. Um, for example, like crude production, mm -hmm. you can you'll find numbers that reference crude production on federal lands is six and a half percent that's onshore and then offshore 16 ish percent. Um, generally speaking, I think production from federal lands ends up being about 20% of domestic U S crude production and about 12% of gas. Okay. Um, but again, I'm a lawyer, not a numbers data <laughs> person. So you'll have yeah. to re-rake me. Um, but generally speaking, it's large. It's very, very large. The BLM manages 700 million acres um, of mineral lands that are property of the federal government. Um, and, and there's another really interesting distinction there too. The, the BLM really only has authority to govern certain lands, which becomes and in any lands that aren't in the purview of the BLM are still technically owned by the federal government which is really interesting when you look at situations like trespass um, because you can end up in a, in a different scope of trouble. I digress. Nobody likes the Department of Justice, right? Um, <laughs> but generally speaking, in the majority of leased lands and lands available for leasing that really impact oil and gas production are in the West. Um, Predominantly, we look at Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, North Dakota, um, and they're all between 25 and you know 30 percent federal lands. And then, you know, I ran an interesting statistic, just kind of musing about the impacts of the election. But currently, um, the BLM reports, and this is delayed data because their reports don't come out until <laughs> next fiscal year. But in 2018. At the end of the fiscal year, they had roughly 25 million acres under lease, and just about half of those were currently producing. So that means you have, you know, roughly half of your leases are not yet developed, which will become relevant when we talk about um, the impacts of possibly inhibiting, prohibiting federal leasing and permitting under a Biden administration. Okay, gotcha. There's definitely a couple of important distinctions I didn't realize too. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering how, um, what most of the Alaskan area operations, is that considered offshore stuff typically? Um, no, like Anwar um, mm -hmm. is definitely, is still onshore and still BLM. Um, okay. And you know, Alaska, I really haven't done too much work personally 
with those assets and really haven't followed as closely as I'm sure many people who do work those assets would, the sort of legislative changes that mm-hmm. could occur. But because some of those lands are, you know, dedicated wilderness and they involve significant more environmental risks. Um, and this is something the BLM, the charter of the BLM is really, really interesting because the BLM is the successor to the um, General Land Office that was created originally to manage patents, surveys, um, back when the country was brand new, right? And as we're expanding West and really building our federal government, that was the office that originally housed the surveys and um, the reports from kind of the boots on the ground, which is really, really fascinating. The website, I mean, if you end up finding yourself running a federal asset, first place you want to go for pretty much everything. They maintain all of the master title plats, oil and gas plats, and never mind, it's just fascinating. I mean, you can find some <laughs> really interesting historical documents. Yeah, 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 and from a title standpoint, mm-hmm. the historical index pages are really important um, because a lot of times they include references to things that aren't recorded, that happened, you know, 1800s, um, that could cause ownership snares or liabilities that you otherwise would be unaware of. So definitely a wonderful resource, but uh, neither here nor there. Um, <laughs> so the BLM, the charter of the BLM under the Federal Land Policy and Management Act is really interesting because it is somewhat of a balancing. So their charter is to manage the public lands for multiple use while also conserving the historical and natural resources. Um, and this becomes extremely relevant when you start looking at the ability of a president uh, to restrict development mm. because the charter of the agency in part is to foster and encourage development. And under regulations, um, the BLM is actually required to issue leases. It is required to hold lease sales. So while an administration can inhibit the ability to do so, an outright prohibition, like is often discussed, would be very logistically difficult. For sure, there are tools um, to try and effectuate something like that, but it will lead to litigation challenges likely be tossed out, like we saw some of the Obama era um, executive orders and regulations about leasing um, challenged. So, But still, frustration of purpose has economic impacts that are significant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, this ties back to if you look at the amount of federal lands that are leased but not producing, that's a lot of capital to be tied up um, and possibly lost. So when you've got a time clock running on a federal lease and you're unable to permit or develop, really expensive endeavor. Okay, gotcha. Got a lot of notes I'm writing down here for <laughs> to ask you a bunch of questions on this. Um, sure. Uh, I guess w- one thing to mention too, because um, it's, it's thrown off a couple people when I've, I've mentioned BLM to them. Uh, Bureau of Land Management, not Black Lives Matter. <laughs> That yes. <laughs> I couldn't remember if you spelled that out the first time you said it or not, uh, but uh, I had a, a roommate that, that caught me saying BLM one time, and he was so confused. I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> so that thank that you um, for the clarification, <laughs> because yes, um, uh, in the last however many months that this has right. become a, you know more of a topic at the forefront, I find myself confused very often, having worked with the BLM Bureau <laughs> of Land Management. For 12 years, it's always going to be the first thing I think of. And so you yeah. can imagine my confusion when I'm like, the Bureau of Land Management is fighting? Like, this right. makes no sense at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And everybody else in, everybody else in the world is, is thinking something else. So. <laughs> but yeah. um, going back to uh, what you said about uh, 20% of the U.S., um, 20% of the production roughly coming from federal lands. That's no, si- that's no uh, small amount. Um, I can imagine if that is... And I, and I want to come back to what you're talking about, like how it can be inhibited or like some learn more about how it's managed, but also like wh- what can be affected um, by whoever's in charge, whoever's the president or whatever be the case. Um, but that's not a small number to, to take off the market. Um, and that has big repercussions for the repercussions for the operators in that area. 
um, but a, a strong ability to really upset uh, oil price in, in the country, even I would think. You know, the numbers, again, numbers game. I, right. <laughs> I've read a lot of articles about this and, and everybody kind of has a different forecast or a different opinion. Um, I personally don't think the Bureau uh, has the authority to upset existing production. Okay. Um, for sure, not outright. Again, could frustrate purpose in some regards. Oh, yeah. um, like we've seen here in Colorado, now we're looking, and this I think this is one thing that Biden talks about a lot, right, is when he talks about the fracking ban, quote, end quote, um, really now that he's backstepped so far, no, no, I don't want to ban fracking, but I'm really concerned with water quality and methane. Methane has been a really interesting one to watch here in Colorado because some of the new rules um, that are being promulgated want to regulate existing wells. And so I guess where that becomes really problematic for existing production is just the expense. Mm -hmm. um, but outside of some sort of regulatory action like that, I do, I believe it would be um, a bit of a stretch. I, I wouldn't anticipate huge frustration of existing production. But certainly the lack of future development mm -hmm. or continued activity, 100%. Um, I mean, I was reading articles that were looking at the disruption in GDP. Um, and of course, these articles were predicting in 2030 or, mm -hmm. but the numbers are huge. I mean, it was like 700 million or mm -hmm. 700 billion in GDP impact over time, a million jobs lost with no future development. Um, and, and so the impact is massive. And when you look at states um, that have 30% of their state being a federal asset, uh, if, you, if you prohibit development on 30% of a state, that's significant, especially when you're looking oh, yeah. at, sure, federal lands may be 30% of that state, but if we zoom in a little bit, they're often half of a drilling and spacing unit. Um, and so yeah, if you're- It's you, not all just a big cluster, right? That we can't develop, it's mixed in. And that's gonna make it even harder. It's, it's interspersed throughout all sorts of different assets. So the ability of a federal lease in a drilling and spacing unit to make that drilling and spacing unit as an entirety not developable Mm -hmm. is is not a stretch. It happens all the time. Um, and we see it with, even with unleased federal lands in a drilling and spacing unit. Mm -hmm. it, and it can happen unintentionally, unplanned, lease expiration, mm -hmm. whatever, but it, it can certainly impact mm -hmm. the drill schedule. Well, and you wonder how that uh, impacts even the, the other mineral, mineral owners that back up right against some of that acreage that now all of a sudden they have no value <laughs> because we can't take a lateral through it because we're going to go through federal acreage as well as yours. So, Absolutely. Impacts. And, you know, the BLM just issued, and so I'll, I'll happily go through. Mm -hmm. it, it's interesting, the governance of the BLM. Of course, the um, CFR, specifically Title 43, is what governs our oil and gas development. Um, and that's where the administrative agencies formally promulgated regulations are housed. So those are really your rules. Um, and of course, to enact a rule, you have a regulatory process that must be complied with, notice, comment, rulemaking. Um, there's absolutely nothing quick about the process. Uh, and so the rules are like the skeletal structure. They're kind of the big framework in which you navigate. And then internally within the BLM, you have your um, handbooks, and then you have your instructional memorandums, and you have your manuals. And the manual, it's it's like a, like a tier. Um, your manual gives you internal guidance on the policy and the procedures to implement compliance with the federal regulations. And then the handbooks are the nuts and bolts. It's like, here's where your form is to effectuate your pooling, to 
pull your lease under the regulations, under the manuals. And then your instructional memorandums, it's like a um, anything that needs to be distributed quickly, anything that is a really specific clarification on an already existing policy. It's not new policy, um, but these are really interesting. They come in, there's either a permanent or a temporary, temporary form. Um, and, and how this all really ties together and how it ties together as being important, all of these policies and procedures trickle down and are created under the existing regime, which is appointed, there's four appointed positions that impact the Bureau of Land Management. And they're appointed under the appointments clause by the president confirmed by the Senate. And um, so when you look at the policy leanings of your executive, those trickle down in those appointments. And then okay. that's what results in your guidances, your new policies and procedures. And these memorandums can have a huge impact. There's two that have been, one is still being regulated, um, but two instructional memorandums for 2018, which were both issued uh, really to loosen leasing procedures in certain species, habitats, sage grouse. Um, and under both of those right now, there's a stay in one out of the federal court in Idaho. And then the Montana federal judge actually vacated issued leases. So when you look at the possible and under both of these court cases, the interpretation of that instructional memorandum two years later is now impacting those operators and leasehold owners mm -hmm. clearly negatively. You have capital tied up in these lease sales. Um, and really interesting, you know, federal leases, they generally, they have general terms, which is one benefit of owning a federal portfolio. And generally speaking, those terms are in some regards, much nicer than fee terms. Absolutely a broad generalization here, but what we see a lot is fee lease terms being much shorter with higher lessor royalty rates. And fee leases being leases. issued by the state, so state land, right? State um, no, private ownership. Oh, so okay. you and I, uh, landowners, private okay. landowners. Gotcha. And to kind of back out, zoom out a little bit on that piece, mm -hmm. so the BLM and federal lands you spoke about in the beginning, what are these really? BLM and federal lands are lands that have never been severed from the sovereign by a patent or otherwise. All other fee lands are lands that have been severed through one of the congressional patent acts under whatever the authority may be. One you may be familiar with, um, you know, like the the railroad patents mm -hmm. to mm -hmm. Transcontinental, which granted the right of way in the patchwork sections, which Anadarko um, mm -hmm. intimately familiar. Um, and then homestead patents, so settlers that were encouraged to move west and then given large chunks of land in exchange for risking their life to live in the middle of nowhere. Um, okay. And those are fee lands. And oftentimes in a drilling and spacing unit, you have both um, fee and federal. At least out here. <laughs> At least Not so much out east them. back home, but. <laughs> At least where federal are, yeah. are predominant. Um, but yeah. So um, it, it is, you can have significant, the policy leanings that are implemented through the manuals, handbooks, instructions, mm -hmm. they can be just as impactful on owners as can administrative action, congressional action or executive orders. So really, I guess where I'm going with this is there's multiple there's multiple ways that a candidate or an executive office can influence how federal lands are governed. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't have to be broadly sweeping to have a significant impact. Okay. And I guess, could you kind of talk more on the specific appointees you mentioned, like by president and confirmed by the Senate or whatever? I know this, what the BLM rolls up under Department of Interior. Is that, I mean, like how, can you kind of go over the, the structure, how it gets from the president to specifically like the BLM? And then you kind of covered the rest down, right? But 
Uh, can you kind of cover the, the top part of that bracket? <laughs> <laughs> sure, yeah. Um, administra- and to be clear, administrative law is not my um Oh, that's fine. You can be as broad as you can. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I actually have been looking into this just as a result of the election. So mm-hmm. everything I've learned about this topic as of late has been only out of sheer curiosity. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, I do think I took administrative law in law school, but <laughs> clearly decided not to practice. <laughs> we um, all have those classes. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, maybe I was awake. I don't know. Um, But yes, so it does roll up under the Department of the Interior. And there's four, actually four appointees impacting the BLM. And that is the Secretary of the Interior, the Deputy Secretary. And then you have the Secretary of Land and Minerals Management. And under that umbrella is the Bureau of Land Management, to which you appoint the director. Um, And interestingly enough, just as of late, a federal court ruled that um, the previous acting director, Penley, was illegally acting for 442 days, I do believe is the number. <laughs> Why um, not? Right. And um, part of that case really, well, he wasn't properly confirmed by the Senate, mm-hmm. was the reason for the improper appointment. But mm-hmm. a lot of the arguments surrounded the policy lean, his policy leanings and his willingness to divest federal lands um, and encourage development of the same. Mm. So mm. this political battle of who gets to, to make the decisions on how we implement our policies and our rules and our regulations really trickles all the way down to even your local field office. I. Generally speaking, I give the my federal presentation is kind of a nuts and bolts for landmen on mm-hmm. how to manage a federal asset. And one of the things I say all the time is, while these are the rules and the regulations, it really depends on your field office. Um, and my <laughs> the best advice I give to any landman is go make friends mm-hmm. because offices will be very flexible with you if they like you. Offices, if they agree with you, if you're an operator they respect and they want you to develop, they will make your life easier than others. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of reasons for, for you know, wanting to be friends with your governing body, but it does go to show that from a reliability standpoint and a consistency of application of policy and rules, there's a lot of wiggle room there mm-hmm. and how policies really get implemented depends on the local okay i, I was yeah. going to ask about that because I, I know even just from tiny bit of work that are, or discussions i've had with people in wyoming is depending on which blm office you you roll up into that development rolls up into is completely different um standards in a sense or different uh, rules that to you know, that you have to um, meet and criteria and stuff. So I was, I was curious, does that all just roll up through the difference of like, um, you mentioned that manuals, handbooks and instruction, manual, like they interpret stuff differently or, cause I think we want, we want to think that just everybody outside of this, probably and myself included, want to think that it's just like a set of <laughs> laws and there's not much wiggle room rolled down, but I uh, just, could you expel on that? Yeah, no, um, that hasn't been my experience at all. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> that it's, you know, it's, it's black and white, cut and dry and easy to navigate. Mm -hmm. Um, Looking, one of the big kind of pros and cons premises I go through with federal assets, and when you look at federal permitting, um, I pulled the delay, the amount of time it takes to get an APD approved. And in 2008, to to get a federal permit to drill. Oh, okay. um, Approved. And when you have federal lands in your drilling and spacing unit, you need to comply with not only the state required permitting process, but also the federal permitting process. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you drill a well in a spacing unit that includes federal lands without a permit, it is an actionable drilling without authorization, um, for which there's lots of fines and fees and penalties and chains on you. Mm-hmm. Um, But really navigating some of your field offices is really, really interesting. The permitting process can take 180 days-ish was the estimate for um, 2018. And what's really fascinating, if you go on the 
Bureau's website and you find this data, they allocate operator responsible days of delay. I think it's called waiting on operator. Um, and those numbers are always seemingly larger than the waiting on BLM numbers, which I just found <laughs> kind of a bit of a chuckle. Um, yeah. yeah, but the, the way regulations are implemented, you are so subject to your field office's method of doing things, manners of interpretation, um, and really own preferences. If you're in an yeah. area that is politically unfriendly to development, your field offices will reflect the same. Okay. And so the subjectivity involved with owning federal leases, I think makes owning a federal asset um, something that, that requires <laughs> diligence and inherently includes some amount of risk mm -hmm. um, because you are so exposed to mm -hmm. It's, you know, um, it's interesting. We even get that on the state level. Uh, but the fact that now you've got two uh, entities that you're rolling up through and you have to comply with um, makes all that much riskier, like you're talking about. Yeah. And, and, and it can work in your benefit, too. I mean, I had mm -hmm. some clients um, request suspension of leases for um, when you when production ceases on mm -hmm. a federal oil and gas lease in secondary term, you receive a 60 day notice in which you have the ability to restore production if your well is capable of production before your lease terminates automatically. Um, and so I had a client that received a 60-day notice and it was in Wyoming and their particular field office was friendly and believed that the operator was credibly intent on developing soon. And so without any real authority under the CFR issued an extension of said 60 days to 120 days, 180 days, mm -hmm. uh, which is interesting because, I mean, it really can work to your benefit, mm -hmm. um, but it also cannot because they could just say no. Or, mm -hmm. um, you know, I've had other clients request suspensions, for example, where one of the instruction memorandums has been challenged. Imagine a drilling and spacing unit. You have four distinct federal leases in the same unit, two of which have been suspended mm. pursuant to this court case and two of which have not. So your time clock on the two that have not mm -hmm. is still running. Um, and when my client requested suspensions for those leases, it was denied based on, well, you technically could still develop by reducing your lateral you know, 50% mm -hmm. in length but, or which really change economics, the economics. And, yep, and development plans yeah. and all of that. Yeah. Yes. 100%. And just because I can drill it mm -hmm. doesn't make it economic worth my while mm -hmm. ideal and still losing. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and enough of those will run an operator out. <laughs> they'll, yes. get, they'll get fed up with it. Um, I'm curious though, if there, so you said there's kind of two sides of this, right? Sometimes this works in your favor and sometimes the other way around. But um, is there a situation that let's say um, someone, so, so Biden in this case or whatever will get elected and let's say he's as harsh as he potentially could be. Um, and we can still get into more of what that might look like, but um seeing as how the local BLM offices seem to have a lot of uh, wiggle room, you take a state like Wyoming that is <laughs> going to favor development, um, that it might be less risky. Maybe they would just say no, or is that, is there a situation that that could happen or? I mean, it depends on the mechanism used okay. to try to frustrate purpose. Um, and there's really, there's really two avenues by which, it would be approached. Um, and one would be emergency presidential action, like an executive order. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and the other then would be regulation, full regulation. Um, and so depending on, you know, the language of the executive order and the purpose of the executive order, for example, you know, one thing that, um, is talked about now is like a fracking ban back to the methane. Mm -hmm. um, if the purpose is for environmental review and it says, you know, all permitting has to be halted, um, I wouldn't see agencies 
wanting to act in direct contravention of either a regulation or an order. But those will also result in challenges from operators, I mean, immediately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so I really don't, I don't think, I think the alarm bells of there's going to be an outright ban, all leasing and permitting will be halted. Mm-hmm. I think that is a misstatement of the authority of the president um, and is overinflated. But I think to be ignorant of the fact that regardless, just the, and you just kind of mentioned, you know, operators are gonna get sick of this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, The frustration of purpose is oftentimes enough, especially in a market like we have today, um, with not $114 oil. Um, (laughs) That's been a while. (laughs) Yeah to make development uneconomic. Mm-hmm. And that yeah. that in and of itself is dangerous when you have an industry yeah. that's already facing fiscal challenges mm-hmm. internally within company balance sheets, a, a horrible market. Um, yeah. It, it's and if a- you look at some of the, some of the regulations, you know, um, of the past that have been really, really influential, like, congressional actions, um, like the Environmental Policy Act, um, have encouraged, we've wanted to encourage domestic development. And looking into this act, one of the one of the EIA stats that was used um, to really kind of support the need for the act was a production that in 2025, we would be relying on 68% of imports. And to look that this last year, the EIA for the first time ever in the US was a net exporter. Really interesting. Um, Mm -hmm. Some of the lasting impacts on domestic energy policy um, and reliance on imports, it's kind of, it was really fun to look at it in hindsight. Um, But it just struck me as such a impactful statistic Mm -hmm. in the regard that Possibly, I, I mean, I don't know how much of that legislation in particular um, with all the other factors, OPEC and mm-hmm. you know, just the development. Yeah, there's always a lot of factors. But it's crazy, though, yeah. how quickly um, and I wasn't <laughs> I can't say I remember, you know, or some of the struggles that we've had as, in the past as a country with uh, the reliance of, on foreign oil. Um, but it's it's interesting how that's not even usually taken as much of a security or national security risk as that would be um, to, to be reliant on foreign nations again. So that's interesting. And it's interesting too, whenever you hear that really any politician, but especially um, Biden, as he did on the debate stage, uh, try and talk a little bit about um, what it would, was he would enact. You just, you know, he has no idea. Like what does it even mean? Like if you're, if you're cutting back on the methane associated with fracking, like, like in the emissions, like what is that referring to? We're not just bleeding gas off while we're fracking. Like I literally don't know what is going through these people's minds. It's hard to guess also. <laughs> it is really interesting. Um, the lack of understanding mm-hmm. of operations is, is, is quite fascinating. And truly, I think in large part, very dangerous. Mm -hmm. So I think as an industry, the best thing we can do is educate people, Mm -hmm. which is one of the things I love about the Energy Strong platform. And Mm -hmm. specifically with Colorado, I think we need to start doing that at the local and municipal level. Mm -hmm. Um, But I feel like our industry, we explain everything in very technical terms. And our industry is so multifaceted, which is one of the things that I liked about your podcast Um, in in the beginning because I am very, very familiar with mm-hmm. preparatory drilling work, ownership issues, mineral ownership, yeah. agent, <laughs> all these topics. Um, but once, once the hole's in the ground, outside of educating yeah. <laughs> myself on what that hole looks like, I, for a long time in my career, had no idea. Yeah. Um, I mean, yeah. I think I was just joking about when I, worked at Samson. I had had no industry knowledge. I never wanted to be in the energy industry. I went to law school for policy um, Mm -hmm. reasons. I always thought I would do lobbying or something of the sort. 
um, and child protective services work. Uh, but no, here I am in energy. Right. <laughs> I truly believe it's the most necessary and wonderful industry out there. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it is, it, it's, you know, I, I really have a very hard time with a lack of understanding. And I was, I was at Samson brand new, mm-hmm. overqualified, you know, <laughs> and I made a comment to a landman, how did, how did that well turn out? Um, right. And he said, it was great if you like salt water, <laughs> you know, yep. laughed yep. and smiled and I was, <laughs> and then quickly went back to my desk and Googled, like, why is there salt water? I don't know. Well, guess well, like, yeah. this is me. <laughs> um, so I think yeah. even within our industry, it, we have so exactly. much technical expertise mm-hmm. um, that making that education and information accessible to the general public, we have done a poor job at. Yeah. And when you watch a debate like last night, I was actually very sad that was the last topic um, because yeah. I have to say, I think even Trump appeared relatively uneducated. Um, I think most um, are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it is important because it is going to have, no matter how you slice it, mm-hmm. whether it's a dramatic fracking ban or an immediate halt on all yeah. permitting, um, again, which I think is highly unlikely. Right. But there, there's an intention there, an intention to satisfy that crowd. And it's interesting. Um, I've wanted to post uh, some of the videos of, of, of them, uh, both Biden Harris uh, talking about fracking before they went to visit PA like a month or however long ago and switched their tune um, and clarified just all this now just on federal land, you know, or whatever, whatever their uh, actual um, position is. But I wanted to, to talk a little bit with you about some of the ways that, um, you know, our processes, our our operations can be inhibited. And we've hit on a few, Um, but I think that's also an important topic for um, all of us listening to to realize that whenever, even if if, um, Biden-Harris have changed their tune, you know, no longer outright fracking ban, uh, you don't have to, I've been saying this to like friends and family around for the last couple of months, is like, you don't have to ban it uh, to make it stop. Um, so I think a lot of it, and I'll, I'll say a couple of my thoughts, and then you can fill in some of the gaps and things we haven't already talked about. But um, in, the, in the permitting, you've already kind of mentioned that. You can delay permits. Um, you can cause the additional need for new permits. Uh, you can add in new standards that we have to meet. So you might not, like you're saying, chasing down the methane and emissions, you might come down to something where we have a incredible um incredibly tight tolerance for emissions, even on like, uh, flanges or, you know, something like, and not that we're just out there leaking everything, but you even got the point where on some of the older, um, on, depending on how and where this is and whatnot, but some of, um, some valves out there even run on process gas. Uh, so when they actuate, they'll vent like a, the tiniest amount of, of gas just while it's actuating that valve, you can come after stuff like that and, and dramatically change um, you know, <laughs> how operators, um, work and what their costs are and, and drive them out of business other ways. Um, but I wanted to get your thoughts on, on that also. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And from a leasing standpoint, um, obtaining a federal lease and complying with federal regulations is already difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and to your point of prohibition versus delay, Mm-hmm. In actual fact, delay is probably, under many cases, prohibition. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, yeah. And you do see that a lot with federal assets. The leasing process itself of not planning, you have to plan ahead. There's only X amount of lease sales every year. Mm-hmm. So to obtain the lands you want, where you want to develop, you, ha- there's, you have to nominate your lands. Mm-hmm. You actually have to get them at your bidding lease sale. And then you, you know, and oftentimes it's, it's unreliable, right? You may or may not get them. You may or may not be the highest bidder. Mm -hmm. Then you have to start your permitting process and obtaining your permit. Then you go through your NEPA, your environmental analysis, your um, site inspections. And that's, that's before you even develop Mm -hmm. and then you develop and then if we have new regulations that want to regulate methane emissions Mm -hmm. and more delay more delay more delay and all the while i mean really my take home for operators and the point of my 
kind of overview of federal minerals and leasing is that there are so many opportunities for uncertainty and delay when you're dealing with development of a federal asset that you have to plan your drill schedule accordingly mm-hmm. and have alternate locations and you know be able to flexibly move your rig schedule mm-hmm. and plan for the unanticipated um, because the federal lease expires and you didn't plan on it expiring and you don't think it expired and you want to argue about it you're arguing with the government yeah so it's not <laughs> a luck. quick discussion yeah, yeah. Um, and even something as simple as, you know, failure to pay a rental, um, Mm -hmm. reinstatements of federal leases for failure to pay a rental. I called before I gave my presentation the last time just to see how long does that actually take? You know, really? Um, and the answer was two to three years. Oh my. And what does that mean? Payment of rental? I'm sorry. Uh, payment of rental. So to maintain a federal lease within its primary term, you have to pay, annual rentals oh, on goodness. the anniversary date of the lease. What was that? I, I didn't realize that. That's a new one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, missing one of those payments is hugely detrimental. And then all of a sudden, if you have this lease that for whatever reason is no longer considered valid, you can't develop that drilling and spacing unit. Um, and you're waiting for the BLM to reinstate your lease, it's two years. That location is Goodness. now off radar for two years. Doesn't matter how great the geology is, yeah. how great your drilling plan is, it's a no-go. Um, so, you know, my take home for operators is really when you have federal leases in your portfolio, there's, there's a lot of unknowns and you have to plan accordingly. I do know a lot of operators, and I think at the time they were calling it the Elizabeth Warren plan. Um, <laughs> but have permitted and, you know, hopefully all have spent the last two years heavily permitting all federal locations mm-hmm. and stockpiling as many approved permits as possible, mm-hmm. which does insulate you in some respects from executive action like, you know, a, a restriction on future permitting. Um, mm-hmm. But it doesn't totally insulate you from regulation of emissions or anything that would impact development, frack design, mm-hmm. okay. et cetera, et cetera. So even those that have planned ahead, I don't think anybody's fully safe. And I don't think owning a federal asset is ever risk-free. <laughs> um, well, honestly, neither is uh, the fee assets with, I mean, states can change stuff anytime too. So Colorado is a perfect example of that one. And California Colorado too. I, I have some friends that work there and I hear little tiny stories. I'm like, oh, it sounds even worse. <laughs> Colorado is a perfect example. And I mean, even more interesting, if you look at our um, governor election, I, I think if you asked the majority of oil and gas, you know, professionals in this community, if they would have seen, foreseen the impact of that election and the outcome we're now seeing mm-hmm. with the new commission. Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, and, and I mean, our voters voted down mm-hmm. a setback yeah. that a commission just enacted. Um, and I think it's a perfect example of how executive leadership can be more important than one would have anticipated because our voting voice is now not represented in our regulations and that's all because of one vote we cast Mm -hmm. for an executive yeah and i think we would definitely see that same thing as a result of a change in the presidential Mm -hmm. election um and i think that frustration of purpose will be significant. Yeah, that, that's interesting too. And it makes it hard for um, any one of us as voters to, you know, we might have uh, everything else we like about this one candidate, but we know that uh, putting them in there can have a trickle down effect and affect all these policies, which affects our job or whatever. I don't know how what, how, what people's positions are on every, everything else other than oil and gas uh, policy with these politicians. But um, it, it's kind of, it makes it hard to vote sometimes, uh, but it, it's it's good to realize just what you're saying, like how much even a, a local election as a governor 
um, can affect. And I guess just to add in some color too, so people know what's going on with the, what she was referencing around Colorado. It's a setback, right? And, and then um, basically what's happened, and correct me, and, and you've been around here longer than I have. Um, yeah. But it sounds like, so the, the regula- regulatory body of Colorado, the, the board of that has basically been re- replaced. Um, instead of having subject matter experts like uh, geologists and petroleum engineers, I don't know who all else is on it, but now it's all political appointees, uh, right? And so they've brought back um, some of the legislation that we've tried to previously voted on and voters voted no on, and has now ruled that out to us in the form of setbacks. So, or has it been ruled out? I missed that if it has been. I know it was being discussed. Uh, it, the vote was unanimous in favor. Oh, of course. Of adopting the rules. <laughs> they have not gone into effect yet. Okay. Um, but any day Crazy. now. Oh, um, my goodness. So that tells you, so even a regulatory commission that's supposed to like help foster development and stuff is coming at us now with uh, choking us out. So, Well, and an interesting piece of the 181 legislation, too, to your point about fostering development, and this ties in to the mission statement of the BLM as well, how I mentioned it's a balancing test, really. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the thing that 181 did, which backstory, that was really the big piece of legislation that was passed by our executive that made the restructuring of the commission and, and all of this. And did it also allow for the, the local empowerment of communities to regulate instead of just a state level, right? So yeah, this kind of all really, came in phases. It was small little steps towards this. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, this is the perfect example of how mm-hmm. a piece of legislation can, I, you know, I, I've heard plenty Unleash. of people <laughs> reference Colorado as a no investment state. Yeah, I've heard um, that too. And the DJ Basin is a wonderful asset. I mean, Fantastic. we have great geology. We have... Fantastic economics, typically. <laughs> a yes, lot of oil and, and low water cut. Uh, you can't get much better than that out of an oil play. And of course, this is not my wheelhouse. This is probably yours because right. I'm still over here Googling what saltwater <laughs> means. Um, but it is a perfect illustration of the devastating effect that legislation can have. And now this one piece of legislation changed the balancing test of the mission of the commission mm-hmm. to make regular to make environmental concerns more important than conservation of resources. Yeah. Um, which from like a legal standpoint, you know, it is it's like now a hurdle, right? As opposed to something that you weigh. Um, you have to prove that you have no negative impact, which is a lot harder oh, yeah. of a burden what, what, to me. What operation, any type of industrial operation has zero impact? No, um, absolutely. <laughs> Us breathing humans. here on earth has an impact. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Humans are impactful no oh, matter yeah. what we do. 100%. Um, but so it changed the mission of the commission, which is devastating. Mm-hmm. And then it changed the structure of the commission, which is devastating. Um, and now we've enacted regulations that, I mean, I think one of the last statistics I saw um, was that like at least, I think it's probably more, but at least 30% of proposed permittable location yeah. are no longer subject to development. Um, mm-hmm. And she, when it was on the ballot, there were assertions that it was up to like 95% in the 90s, of the state. Yeah. And it's one of those um, things that people think like, oh, we'll, we'll adjust as an industry, right? We don't have a direction to drill. We can drill from like who, <laughs> the next city away if we wanted to, but we'll there's a lot of- drill from Wyoming. Exactly. Yeah. There's so many technical uh, limitations. And of course, and as an industry, I'm sure we'll figure out some things for sure, uh, but it's not just uh, open and shut, uh, oh, we'll adjust um, overnight kind of thing. Mm-mm. And the depth of those changes mm-hmm. is so great and I'm that sure they're, they're not, not going to be easily undone. And yeah. I mean, I think that's shown by these pending litigation issues with the instructional memorandums. Um, even when you have policy changes that are made, you might not feel the burden or the consequence Mm-hmm. for two, three, four, six years. Right. Um, which is why I think when people discount the importance of these elections, and even as far as Senate races are concerned, I mean, Cory Gardner has been uh, kind of a big topic of conversation and the importance of that seat. And when you look at the appointment power, 
requiring confirmation of the Senate, mm -hmm. um, it's not just ownership of the presidency that's important. Every seat really matters. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. and, and I think that's something that as citizens, we discount. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. A lot of a lot of good thoughts there. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, so we're getting closer uh, towards the end here. I know we've covered a lot for sure. And, and if anybody has additional questions, you know, please reach out to uh, myself or Breezy. Or if you reach out to me, I can uh, forward it to, to Breezy because I probably won't know the answer on this topic. But uh, I might not either. But hey, <laughs> we'll all figure it out. Um, and it is so fun. Yeah, definitely welcome questions, yeah. discussion, any 100%. and all of it. Um, and, we and we're going to be in for a ride here the next few weeks. Yeah, that's going to be in there. Well, potentially even months, honestly. We'll see how it goes. We'll see who's right <laughs> on this uh, mail and stuff. But uh, anyways, uh, any, anything uh, you know, that you know you wanted, uh, wanted to mention that we didn't get out yet? I know we've um, bounced. Uh, we've got all kinds of topics covered and stuff. But uh, anything in particular yeah. uh, you wanted to say towards the end here? No, I don't think so. Um, you know, but I would, I would just say that for anybody who finds themselves mm -hmm especially with all the transitions in our industry and changes in um, staff and assets and um, all of this, you know, if you find yourself working a federal asset, mm -hmm. so important to know that it's different mm -hmm. and it's, it's whole own animal and there's all the snares and all the pitfalls and all the obligations mm -hmm. Um, and you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that at the outset and you can't go educate yourself if you don't know you need to go educate yourself. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. so I guess that would just be my takeaway, uh, that acknowledge that federal assets come with their own set of inherent risks. And mm -hmm. you find yourself at the helm of one, um, stay engaged. Yeah. and really kind of learn the nuances of maintaining your leases, mm -hmm. um, obtaining permits, what your regulations are. And you really have to think outside the box on how those can affect your planned operations mm -hmm. long-term, large scale. Um, because I see a lot of people find themselves in emergency situations with mm -hmm. federal assets. and forward. Yeah, always, yeah. always good to have backup. <laughs> Maybe even a uh, plan B and a C and a D and E and <laughs> as far down as you yeah. want to go. But yeah. I think that, that that's a good uh, closing remark. There's a stay engaged. And this, this wasn't meant to be a doom and gloom uh, episode or anything like that. Uh, there's just lots of different ways that this could all turn out. And I, I like your, your comment there, stay engaged. So let's uh, try to do that. And more than welcome to, to come back on the show and we'll have to make this kind of regular and can fill us in. Yeah. What, what the, what, what's going on now and how things are looking. So yeah. it is, it is really interesting. I mean, you do have yeah. to stay engaged and you know, I always say there's no, there's no reason for doom and gloom ever because at the end mm -hmm. of the day you are where you are in the situation you're in and there's generally no changing that. So mm -hmm. yeah. um, to that end, you know, I think the hysteria associated with the presidential election and it's the industry apocalypse and <laughs> is i think that's overplayed as well um mm -hmm. so while we need to be mindful of all of the areas that our industry can be negatively impacted and mm -hmm. try to mitigate those impacts with both voting and as professionals educating the public and mm -hmm. outreach and yep. Um, all of these other showing our faces and, and that's one of the Absolutely. big messages of, of energy strong too is getting out and getting involved um it's so easy for everybody outside of the industry to think uh, you know we all just want to destroy the world and we're all just dirty and nasty and like honestly uh, a lot of people that i um that come to mind who, who really care for the environment who have had uh, good environmental discussions with works in the industry and really cares about our impacts on you know on uh, the world around us and uh, making 100%. them as small uh, as, as they can be. So we're not, uh, we need to show our faces <laughs> in our communities and, and to, our, to our leaders and stuff. And I'm guilty of that too. So maybe we can all kind of yeah. <laughs> take that to heart. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, I think the one thing we really didn't talk about that is the most nuts and boltsy of this whole topic um, is the reminder that the executive really only has control over federal lands. 
Um, and, you know, I think that's another piece. Our industry is so broad. Um, again, not worth hitting the panic button just right. yet. <laughs> and for sure, it can destroy your capital, frustrate your purpose, cause delay. Um, yeah. But we, we don't need to get out the bail buckets or panic. Yeah. All right. But we should be aware that yep. we for sure can be negatively impacted. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for for being on and, and kind of opening our eyes to this. Uh, so we'll have to have you back on and look forward to uh, working with you on future content, future courses that'll be coming out. Uh, so yes, very excited. <laughs> awesome. Well, and thanks so much for for our listeners. And uh, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, I'll drop her LinkedIn link uh, in the show notes and my down there also. And if you uh, would like to be the guest, uh, one of my guests, uh, reach out to me, contact orphobasics.com or have a specific topic that you'd like uh, us to cover. So, so please reach out. Anyways, thanks everybody for listening. Take care, have a great week, and we'll catch you in the next episode.